That arresting music you just heard is from a string trio by composer Henri Tomasi. It is the first track, the first piece, on a new album on Sadie Records by the Black Oak Ensemble. The album is called Avant l'Orage, which translates to Before the Storm, French string trios 1926 to 1939, and the storm being referenced is World War II. Those of you who have listened before know that every time we have a new release on Sadie Records, we have a new classical Chicago podcast. Avon Laraj is our new release for July 2022. I'm Jim Ginsburg, founder and president of Sadie Records, and I'm delighted that my guest on this podcast is Aurelien Fort Petrozoli, who is the violist of the string trio known as the Black Oak Ensemble. Hi, Aurelien. Hello, Jim. Pleasure to be here. I'm so glad you are. So before we get to the album, can you talk a little bit about the Black Oak Ensemble, how it was formed, tell us who its other members are, etc.? The Black Oak Ensemble is, like you said, a string trio. The two other members are violinist Desir Ristrat and cellist David Cunliffe. It started as a friendship. We were all very good friends, and we would get together, have quite a bit of wine, and read music. And we realized that... The string trio repertoire was very untapped and not represented as much as it should be. Most people play string quartets or piano trios. String trio is uh, unfortunately not played as much. And we started working on different projects. So at first we were working with guitarist Goran Ivanovich, music that was a bit lighter and folk inspired. And then the more it progressed, the more we found a bit of a niche with a string trio. And the two other members of this string trio are celebrated educators. Desiree teaches at Northwestern, and she has a big studio of pre-college kids. And so education became something very important for us that we used through the string trio. So it started about seven years ago. It started with friendship. We are still friends. Well, I'm glad you mentioned other chamber ensembles such as string quartets and piano trios. In fact, I should note that your colleagues in this ensemble, violinist Desiree Rustrat and cellist David Cunliffe, who incidentally are a married couple, are also members of the Lincoln Trio, along with pianist Marta Aznavorian, which is a regular performing ensemble for Sadie Records. And you yourself used to be an original member of the Spectral Quartet. What is the difference, from your point of view, of string quartet playing versus string trio playing. Are there different demands? Do the composers write for those ensembles differently? Yeah, it's it's a different beast. String quartet, it's about achieving a unity through perfect intonation and sound. Four voices becoming one that has all those colors and those texture, and it's very, very difficult. A string trio is about three soloists. I would argue that the parts for string trios are much more difficult than for string quartet because there is no hiding. You're playing all the time. The second violinist or a violist in a string quartet, here's a middle voice and you can mitigate and just be part of the texture. That's impossible in a string trio. All the voices are super important and that's what makes it fun. 
because you're able to express yourself in a way that generally doesn't happen in an ensemble that is a regular ensemble where you practice every day. You know? With string quartets, you have tradition of excellency where it is so in tune, it's painful. With string trio, because you're three soloists, it either clicks or it doesn't. And we are lucky enough that it does for us. And part of the reason why is because we all come from the same tradition of string playing. Jim talked about Europe as a big part of our development. And I'll have to say that as well. All of our teachers were more or less from the same school. And so we think of intonation in a very similar way. But instead of thinking of intonation as a unmovable, like a piano, we prioritize expressive intonation, which is something that often in string quartet you have to fight endlessly to decide what to do with it. But with us, it's something that just happens. It's not to say that we don't play in tune or out of tune, but the intonation work much easier for us. And I should note that the Black Oak Ensemble has a fairly international flavor. Of course, David Cunliffe is originally from the UK, and uh, you're originally from France, right? Correct. And Desiree would argue that she's originally from Switzerland. <laughs> well, I'll leave it at that. And and in fact, international touring is a big part of BOE's DNA, isn't it? That's a lot of what we do. And actually, both projects we had to record for CD were born more or less from our international touring. We perform in Europe three to four times a year. We just started a new project with a group of young musicians called Increscendo in Colombia and are going to start an exchange between Chicago and Colombia. And so we'll be performing there. We are, like you said, musically closer to our European roots because of where we studied and with whom we studied. And every one of those tours has brought music to our repertoire that wasn't there before. Well, since you mentioned the previous album, let's, before we get to the new one, talk a little bit about that. Uh, That album was titled Silenced Voices. The period of the repertoire covers some of the same time period, although different locales. And of course, it is music by composers who were silenced in five of six cases permanently uh, during the Holocaust. Can you talk a little bit about the recording and its success, both as an album and as a concert program that you still perform. It's a project that's very dear to our heart. It was a little bit like an archaeological find because some of those pieces were not edited. We had to get close to the families of the victims and find those manuscripts, get them edited. Quite a few of those pieces were written in Theresienstadt in one of the ghettos outside of Prague. And we had the honor to perform this music there, which was very powerful and It was an interesting work. That's a work that you don't get to do very much as a classical musician of really digging deep and finding scores that are no longer edited and bringing them to life. We had great feedback and critiques and reviews, which was validating for how much work Sidi and and us put together. And this is repertoire that we still perform. We were performing at one of the biggest festivals in America, the Newport Festival in Rhode Island in July, and we're also performing Silence Voices. It's repertoire that is so relevant today. When you look at what's going on everywhere in the world, this is testament to human nature, the fact that people were able to write such music in the condition that they wrote it, whether it was in hiding or in a ghetto or 
one of those pieces was written two weeks before the composer was assassinated by the Nazi regime. So it is very relevant and we make sure to include it in every performance that we give. The Silence Voices have been extremely successful, both well-received publicly and critically. Uh, Classics Today gave it its top 10-10 rating, for example, and praised its insightful, committed, and masterful performances. Well, moving on to the new program, Avant l'Orage, what was the inspiration for this, both the album concept and the specific program? Well, the inspiration was a bit twofold. From a musical point of view, we carried one of those pieces by Jean Cra, a trio that we absolutely love performing. We played it for the past six years. We toyed with the idea of doing a whole Cra album. We toyed with the idea of doing many other programs with this. In one of our tours, where we were touring with Silence Voices, we ended up in Corsica, which is a small island. I mean, people wouldn't like me saying it's small, but it's an <laughs> island off the coast of France, and it's very close to Sardinia. That's where Napoleon was born. After a concert, Desiree asked the presenter, well, do you have any big composers from here? And, and the presenter said, yes, well, Henri Tomasi. And we looked it up, and he did have a string trio that was never recorded. So we got the music right away, and I got, again, this historical society uh, work where I got in touch with a very famous library in Paris called La Flûte de Pont, which has been around forever. And I told them, give me every string trio you have (laughs) by French composers. And so they did. And some of those are first editions because no one's ever played them or recorded them. That's how we started diving into it. But the second reason behind the album was the fact that the pandemic happened. And David, Desiree, and I were in a bubble. We created a COVID-safe bubble where we were the only people that we saw. And so all we did, basically, was read those pieces and decide what we liked, what we didn't like, and fantasize about what kind of album we would do. And then we submitted the program. Just like with Silent Voices, there is enough material in both Silent Voices and Avant L'Orage to make two more albums. There was a lot of string trios written during that time period, and I'm sure we're going to touch upon why later. So we made our choices. There were some difficult cuts. That's how the project was born. Well, I'm glad you mentioned all of that. I should note that we're recording this podcast in mid-May, two months ahead of the July 14th, that is 14 Juillet, the French Independence Day celebration. That will be the day that Avon Larage is released. Oh, and you talk about the amount of repertoire. This is a pretty good deal for folks. It's actually a double-disc set, but being treated as a single disc in terms of purchasing. There are seven different trios lasting combined over two hours, and three of the seven, all these works except for the Cra, which is a little earlier, all these works are from the 1930s, so these are works that are you know, 80 plus years old, and yet three out of the seven are world premiere recordings. So there's discoveries to be had here. Since you alluded to the reason there are so many string trios from this period, let me just ask you point blank, who were the Pasquier brothers? So the Pasquier brothers were a trio, the Trio Pasquier, and all three of them were the best of the best friends at the time, so a violinist, a violist, and a cellist. They were all principal of the local orchestra. I forgot which one exactly it was. And they had this string trio called Pasquier Trio. And they recorded extensively with great pianists and other works, sextet, quintet. 
they were so present in Paris during the 20s and 30s that nearly every composer wrote for them, whether it was a piano quartet or a string trio. And out of those seven composers that happened to be on Avant l'Orage, five of those pieces are dedicated to them. One of the pieces by Gabriel Piernet, which closes the album, is not only dedicated to them, but the first movement is written after their names. And so each of us plays the name of the corresponding member. What Piernet does with the names of the Basque brother, which is Jean-Pierre and Etienne. Basically, he invented a scale that fits each name because there is not enough letters in all those names to create a melody so he basically decided j was a different letter and t etc etc and then he did the same thing for the name basket trio and it's culminating to a, a fugue that is actually completely brilliant from a composing point of view i'm sure he had a lot of fun doing that and uh, so that's very interesting obviously very very good players there is some recordings of them playing some of the string trios, not the one we recorded, others. If you look back at programs from the 30s, you had the Budapest Quartet, that was the biggest quartet in Europe and perhaps the world. And then when it wasn't the Budapest Quartet, it was a basket trio, like Carnegie Hall, Théâtre des Champs-Élysées, Concert Bar, Amsterdam, so they were always present. And I should note of the seven trios on this album, five of them were in fact written for Les Frères Pasquier. In her program notes for the album, Eleanor Olin says the Black Oak Ensemble continues their legacy. Do you think of yourselves as a bit of a 21st century Pasquier trio? Yeah, to a certain extent, it's very difficult to compare yourself to such giants. And their influence obviously is enormous, given that we are recording an album based on their existence. If you look in the world currently at string trios, there are not many. You can count them on your left hand. We are continuing that. We are commissioning works and we are forming new works, not just freshly written in the past year or so, but also you can call what is on Avant l'Orage as new works because no one's ever heard them. This is our way to continue their legacy. Wonderful. Because most of the pieces and even composers are not so well known to listeners, at least not here, I highly recommend Eleanor Olin's extensive program notes in the album booklet. And even if you decide to stream the album rather than buy it on CD, you can still access the booklet at the Sadie Records website, C-E-D-I-L-L-E records.org. Just go to the Avant Lorage album page and the notes are there. You can either read them right off the page or you can download the full album booklet there. And like I said, I think you'll find a lot of really interesting information in those program notes. I'll offer my own assessment of this program, as does Ellie. For me, this is music that's often full of strong emotions, as we just heard at the beginning of the podcast, but there's also a great deal of wit and charm on display. What would you say as an overall feeling of what's here? What I love about all those pieces is that you can pretty much pinpoint when they were written because this language that is very idiomatic of the 30s, 40s musically, but each composer has its unique voice. You have Jean Cra, who evokes his many travels on the Pacific Ocean. You have Gabriel Piernet, who takes a quotation by Balzac mm-hmm. about the clergy and makes a joke out of it. You have Francis' completely kooky trio, but yet absolutely brilliant. Gouet, 
who was one of the most tragic figures of this album because he was deported and died shortly after that very morose outlook on where he was living you have Tomasi's absolute fanfaresque first movement that we heard all those composers absolutely have their own voice Kazatsu who was one of the most famous pianists of the time crazy last movement with I forgot how many sharps because that creates a sound that you don't get otherwise it's very diverse music like you said full of wit a lot of lyricism and definitely very unique voices the album opens with a piece by Henri Thomasy, who lived from 1901 to 1971. Now, he was technically born in Marseille, but to Corsican parents and is celebrated as, as Corsican, correct? Oh, he's a national treasure. <laughs> and I would not mention that he was born in Marseille. <laughs> if you ever go to Corsica, they're very proud people. But I can mention it here. Yeah. Okay. You're safe. <laughs> Well, he's best known for his virtuosic trumpet and trombone concertos, and this, as you noted, is actually the world premiere on record of his, and I'll give the full name of the piece now, Trio Accord en Forme de Divertissement, which was composed in 1938. What else should we know about him as a composer? He was actually quite a good conductor. He wrote a few operas. He has an almost Prokofiev-like style of writing, like you said, very famous for his trumpet and trombone concertos. Those are like basically what you have to play in order to get into the Chicago Symphony <laughs> or New York Phil. But his string writing is absolutely unbelievable. This is one of our favorite pieces. We play it all the time. We're actually playing it this afternoon in a concert. It's a real adventure. All of the movements are very, very different. There is a Corsican melody that flows through the piece. And actually, last December, we were in Corsica working with Corsican composers. We played Tomasi there. And what was very interesting was the fact that one of the older Corsican men came to see us and said, but you know, the last movement, there is a theme that comes back over and over. And actually, it's a revolutionary theme about cutting the heads of nobles, mm. which we weren't aware of. And Tomasi was a communist bordering on anarchist. A lot of the music is maybe not politically minded, but has some kind of populist outlook. Like I said, it flows through the trio. Well, it's interesting that he titles it En Forme de Divertissement, considering the aggressive opening movement we just heard at the top of the program, and now you mentioning this revolutionary idea. I do have to ask, do you think the opening four-note figure is an homage to Beethoven in the Fifth Symphony? Yeah, we thought about that. It's possible. I guess we'll never know. It's hard not to think about that, given the influence that Beethoven's Fifth Symphony has had on every composer. What's interesting is that, actually, Tomasi... There was a great violinist named Zino Francescati, who was very, very famous. And he was very close to Tomasi because they were both from Marseille. And when they got to the Paris Conservatoire, Tomasi was going to be a pianist and Francescati was going to be a composer. And that ah. changed very quickly. And there are many interviews that you can see on YouTube of the two of them talking to each other and evoking old times. Francescati was a big proponent of Tomasi's music. He played his sonata and, and, and other. I have to say also about Tomasi that he's one of the composers that we have been in touch with his family. And by family, I mean his son. He's trying to open up a lot of the music by Tomasi to the rest of the world. It was his birth year last year, I believe, or 2021. 20th anniversary yeah. would have been it was last an year. Anniversary last year, and we actually performed Tomasi as part of the celebrations in Europe. 
and he worked very closely with a musicologist called Frédéric Ducrot, who has dedicated a big part of his professional life to Thomas's music. Well, in any case, that opening moment is certainly not what one would expect from a movement uh, innocuously titled Prelude. Why don't you walk us through the four movements, or at least the first three, and then we'll key in on the finale that you already mentioned something about, since that's the one we'll hear an excerpt from. Well, the first movement is a prelude. It could be called fanfare, but I think the title Sweet Enfant de Divertissement is a joke. We find another divertissement in this album, in Gustave Samazoy's trio. You have to look at it in a Baroque way, a divertissement, you know, like a divertimento. One thing that you have to mention is that it is impossible, whether you're looking at Beethoven's string trios or string trios written today, it's impossible to not think about Mozart's divertimento, which is a masterpiece in seven movements. And I think that in the back of the mind of any composer who attempts to write a string trio. So maybe that's why it's so present. The second movement is this really beautiful nocturne that lets you dream a little bit about evening in Corsica, looking at the Mediterranean Sea while enjoying a glass of white wine. It's very beautiful. There is a lot of Ravel or Debussy references in the middle of it. Third movement is this crazy scherzo that is actually devilishly difficult with in the middle part this great calm shepherd song which is a song that flows through the trio and then the last movement is this absolute fanfare of a peasant dance and some reference about cutting heads well okay let's talk about that then so the finale as it's called is in the form of a folk dance eleanor olin in her notes highlights a provincial air that's quoted uh, les olivettes what do you know about that very little. It's a Provencal. You can actually listen to it online. It's a very simple melody. Whether it was a melody that was important to him or just something he heard, I'm not quite sure. His son mentioned that his dad liked to include popular melodies as a Easter egg mm -hmm. a lot of the time in his composition, whether it was in the opera or in the more jazzy trumpet concerto. It's very Provencal, and it, and by Provencal I mean like from Provence. It gives a little bit more of that peasant dance feel to it. The viola part is, you can picture someone dancing with big wooden shoes, and the end finishes in this frenzy presto, and it, it's a trip. Of all the movements, this might be the one that actually fits the title Divertissement the best. And those opening fifth accompaniments give it a particularly folksy flavor. And in fact, let's hear some of that. I'm going to hear a section from this movement where you and Desiree, the violinist, get to trade off playing themes over those open fifth accompaniments in the cello. Is it as much fun to play this as it sounds? Yeah, it's a lot of fun. And when we play it live, we tend to push the tempo a little bit further. And so there is this edge to it. It's fun to listen to. What I am particularly proud of in this recording is the fact that our sound blends very well. Meaning when Desiree and I trade, sometimes listening, I'm asking myself, is it me playing or is it Desiree? Because mm. we play in unison a lot of the time. I think that's very special and, and it's part of the fun for sure. Well, let's hear that then. So here is an excerpt from the fourth moment, the finale from Henri Thomasy's Trio Accord en forme de divertissement as performed by the Black Oak Ensemble on their new album, Avant l'Orage, French String Trios, 1926 to 1939. <laughs> 
You just heard an excerpt from the finale, the last movement of a string trio by French Corsican composer Henri Thomassy, a piece from 1938. So it fits within the album subtitle of French string trios from 1926 to 1939. I should remind people the members of the Black Oak Ensemble are Desiree Roustrat violin, Aurelien Fort Pedersoli viola, who's my guest on this podcast, and David Cunliffe cello. Next on the program comes the largest work on the album and also the oldest. This dates from 1926, and it is the Trio pour Violon, Alto et Violoncelle, which simply means Trio for Violin, Viola, and Cello, by Jean Cras. And that's spelled C-R-A-S, who lived from 1879 to 1932. Not that any of the composers on this album are particularly famous, at least in the States, but this comes from one of the most obscure, I would say, composers on the program, who is perhaps better known to naval officers and scholars than musicians. So, Aurélien, who was Jean Cras? Jean Cras is an amazing figure. First of all, what he's remembered for outside of music is something called the Cra Maneuver. And he invented a tool which basically helps you navigate ships, which is still used today. He was a Navy officer, but he studied at the conservatoire. He was very serious about music and he was friends with all the luminaries of his time, but he spent most of his life on boats in the Pacific and the Indian Ocean. Somewhere people say that he would only get on a ship if there was a piano on board yeah. or an organ. He wrote quite a bit of music, actually, like most French composers of the time, for flute and harp. And uh, He has a quintet that is quite often played. Uh, it's a string trio with flute and harp, a beautiful piece. And like I said at the beginning of the podcast, this trio was the cornerstone, if you will, of this project because we came across it six years ago. We learned it and then we performed it many, many, many times. And we absolutely love the piece. Each movement is evocative of a different voyage that he did. I imagine it is. Each movement has a flavor that is not from France, let me put it this way. And what's interesting is that you had Debussy and and Ravel using harmonies, and in some cases during that time period, that music can feel a tad bit colonialist, if you will. Mm. It feels like they're not so much capturing the essence of the music as much as using it as a novelty or cheap trick. Kra doesn't do that. He is extremely precise in what he wants. The third movement, for example, the cello and the viola are supposed to sound like gamelans. And the way that he instructs you to pluck the string shows very deep knowledge of the instruments, but also desire to be as true as possible to the music he hears. There are, in the second movement, almost barbaric from North Africa, sound where the violin is supposed to sound more like one of those Rebec or three-string violins that you find in, in Morocco or Algeria. And then the last movement, which is the most fun one, and that's like Pirates of the Caribbean. It is a rowdy, driven presto and something that you cannot not imagine pirates or some kind of swashbuckling sailors. When we talked about Thomas C., you talked about his family's pride in his Corsican heritage. 
Krav described himself as a proud Breton. Can you explain what a Breton is? Yeah, Breton is a region of France where it's located up left. So <laughs> I would say like closer to England. It is a region of France that is very famous for their sailors. Fishermen, obviously, but a lot of the great naval officers of France come from Bretagne. It has its own language. It's a region that is extremely proud and ancillary almost. Most of the regions of France have just trampled each other so many times that there is no real feeling of identity. I'm sure, you know, the Alsace is one of those places and then Occitanie, southeast. Bretagne is, has truly its own identity. And that's where crabs come from. Mm. And when he says I'm a true Breton, for a lot of folks from there, it's your Breton first and your French second. Well, and in fact, in her notes, Ellen Orland points out that uh, Trio uses both Breton folk music and also alludes to special Breton instruments. A couple of the instruments that Eleanor Orland notes Jean Cra references or alludes to in this music include the bignou, which is a type of Breton bagpipe, and also the bombarde, which is an oboe-like instrument. Yeah, a, a few times, uh, especially in, in the last movement. I, I guess, yes, the last movement is probably the most Breton of all of it. So we should mention the four movements. Well, the first one actually doesn't have any marking at all, so it's simply listed as premier mouvement, first movement. I have to say that throughout this album, and most string trio music, the composers never dug really deep in naming either, <laughs> either the piece or the actual movement. It's a very basic well, there are some exceptions, but we'll get to that. And then the second moment is a slow moment marked long, which means slow. Third moment, anime. And fourth moment that you've been mentioning is très anime, very animated. Well, since we actually heard the finale of the previous trio, I'm actually going to play the scherzo, the anime from this one, which to me is really one of the hit tunes of the album. What would you say about this moment? That's a, a really, really fun movement to play. The whole trio is, but the pets and all the different characters that he brings to light with each of us is fantastic and it's, it's a real fun movement to play. Well, let's hear some of that then. So this is an excerpt from the third moment, Anime, from the string trio by Jean Cra, composed in 1926 on the new album by the Black Oak Ensemble.
That rollicking music you just heard is from the third moment of a string trio by French composer Jean Cra, as performed by Black Oak Ensemble on their album of French string trios from 1926. In this case, all the rest of the pieces are from the 1930s, and it's titled Avant l'orage, Before the Storm. And for a repertoire that goes to 1939, I think you can figure out what the storm was. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, and I sure hope you are, you can find the album when it's released on July 14, French Independence Day, 14 juillet, when it's released on streaming sites like Spotify and Apple Music and Tidal and all the rest. Of course, you can buy it as a download as well, or the physical CD, which you can get on sadierecords.org, our website, C-E-D-I-L-L-E records.org or Amazon or Archive Music or however you like to obtain or listen to your music. I sure hope you'll want to check out this very generous double disc set over two hours of 1920s and mostly 30s French string trios as performed by the Black Oak Ensemble. Well, now we come to the third piece on the album and perhaps an even more obscure figure, Emile Gouet. And I should ask, are these composers better known in France or will they be discoveries even for most French listeners? There will be discoveries. Francais, very famous. Cra, quite famous in France. Pierre was director of the conservatoire. Tomasi, also well known. But Emile Gouet, not so much. And one of the reasons why is because, first of all, he was a science teacher. But second, he was a very tragic figure. He ended up being deported during the Second World War. He came back and died very shortly after. We've been in touch with his son, who is doing poorly, is quite elderly, and it was very sad to hear that he basically did not know his dad, because when his dad was deported, he was three years old, and when he died, he was five. He continues the legacy of trying to get his dad's music published and and performed, but he's definitely one of the lesser-known composers, which is very sad. Also, his, his writing is more academical, if you want to look at it this way, more intellectual. He's the closest to the 12-tone movement, although he does not use it, but he does have a very defined way of writing that is based on theory and colors that he assigned to every chord. The music itself sounds very impressionistic. It actually, to my mind, is the closest music to silence voices. Mm, it is very close to Krasa and Klein's music. And it is the most tormented of all the string trios. If you look at all the string trios on Avant l'Orage, there is a joie de vivre, there is a laissez-faire, even in darker moments. It's all upbeat music. It's all lyrical, dramatic sometimes, but quite optimistic, I would say. And Gouet's music is not. It is uh, reflective, and I read it as pessimistic, maybe also because of the context that I know what kind of person he was, but definitely a piece that needs to be discovered and played a lot. So when you say he was deported, I should just make clear he was a prisoner of war Yeah, uh, from 1940 to the end of the war. So he was born in 1904, but he died in 1946 from health complications from his time as a prisoner of war. In fact, recent biography of him is titled Compositeur mort pour la France, mm-hmm. Compositor who died for France. Now, as you mentioned, this trio from 1939, which was written right before he went to war, shows him clearly a very technically skilled composer. It's in three movements, 
I'll let you just give a quick description before we zero in on the middle movement for our excerpt. The first movement is probably the one that I consider to be the closest to Silence Voices. It is kind of the same rhythm, the same colors. It's very close to Herman, actually, if you ever listen to the album. First movement, very pensive. Second movement is a gorgeous, almost Sicilian, very beautiful harmonically. And then the third movement is a swashbuckling pirate song again, which I guess was a very en vogue in France at the time. It's definitely a pearl of a string trio. I should note that third moment to Tarantella. And the first moment is marked presto, but it certainly does not have a hectic feel to it at all. One of the things I find interesting about some of this repertoire is you can't always guess the feeling of the movement from the tempo marking or title. On the one hand, you have this presto, which again is not particularly hectic, but then we're going to next hear from Jean-Francais, an allegretto that is lightning fist. Yeah. So you never know. But in any case, I wanted to zero in, partly because we just heard two very frenetic movements. I thought it would be good to take things down a bit with the adagio here, which Eleanor Olin in her notes refers to as a lullaby. I know when you describe him as more academic, I understand what you mean, again, because his music is so precise, but this movement certainly touches the heart. Oh, for sure. Yeah, and that's part of his tragic personality. What I mean by academic is that out of all the composers on this album, he's maybe not the one that composes, that flows out of him. I think it's very thought out, very methodical. And if you look a little bit into his life and his ideas for uh, composing, you'll find that he has all those theories that he applies to every one of those compositions. Interesting. Well, let's hear some of this really lovely adagio. And again, this is from the String Trio, written in 1939 by Emile Gouet.
That very gentle music you heard was a portion of the middle movement, the adagio, lullaby-like, by composer Emile Gouet, who lived from 1904 to 1946, trio from 1939. And incidentally, Gouet is spelled G-O-U-E with an accent aigu that's down and to the left, in case you couldn't figure out from the pronunciation how that might be spelled. And he is, uh, even in France, a fairly obscure composer, partly because he died so young and was a prisoner of war for almost the last five years of his life as well. But moving on now to perhaps the best-known composer on this generous album. Again, none of them, I would say, are exactly well-known outside of France, but uh, this is Jean Francais, and spelled almost like the language, except it's with an X at the end instead of an S. Jean Francais, who lived from 1912 to 1997. And this is maybe the one work that you could call a repertoire staple for performing string trios. Is that true? I think it's definitely one that you have to play as a string trio. It is very, very difficult. There are some passages that are borderline unplayable. (laughs) Uh, So I think that a lot of people shy away from performing this music. Uh, We love playing it. We've performed it quite a few times. It is a piece like none other. I tend to say that about every piece on this album. But Francais' language is just absolutely bonkers. <laughs> uh, the way that he switches character. For me, it's a giant circus from beginning to end. I have this image of this Tim Burton-esque <laughs> circus in an empty plane with creepy clowns and really funny things happening. I don't know if the trio is short, but the movement definitely feel like they are. He wrote a lot for winds. I think he has a great wind quintet. Some of his music is played often. I think he was a child prodigy, studied with Nadia Boulanger. He definitely someone who transcended composition as a pure technical endeavor, and he does what he wants. All of those movements are completely different one from the other, and just absolutely unique voice in the way that he uses a string trio from the texture that he demands of us at the beginning of the first movement to the almost opera-like slow movement and then the crazy last movement with the creepy clown. Yeah. Well, I should note that this is yet another piece that was written for the Pasquier Trio, so it gives you an idea of how good they must have been. If you hadn't figured it out from what Aurelien just said, Francais is particularly known for his musical humor, and I think you hear that maybe particularly in the Scherzo movement, which is really a hoot. I'm actually not going to feature that here, but when the album comes out, I think you will find that I'm going to be putting that on quite a few CD playlists because <laughs> that movement is just so much fun. But the first moment is the ultimate in ensemble precision and dynamic control. It's very fast because of the note values, even though it's marked allegretto or allegretto vivo. It's all in unison, and it's pretty much all pianissimo. What's it like to play a movement like that? Playing it live is a bit (laughs) nerve-wracking. Recording it is also a bit nerve-wracking because then you hear it. When a movement is fast, we tend to try to not only play it fast, but carry over a feeling of flow and this is what we were trying to do with this movement so we're playing it i think a little bit faster than other recording it is to be noted that this piece has been recorded quite a few times heifetz recorded it with uh, fiatigorsky and di pasquale it is nerve-wracking but it's extremely interesting like you can't take your eyes off the road for a second (laughs) there is a passage uh, in the middle of the first movement that is one of those 
almost impossible to play and I'm really proud we actually nailed it in the recording but if this is almost like Francais maybe just wanted to make the musicians look bad almost you know it was like well this is really difficult and good luck with it um, you know the viola is in like the stratosphere the violin is in the stratosphere and the cellist is playing impossible pits and the audience probably doesn't know what's going on but we're sweating well okay let's hear that you mentioned that the movements are short and they all are and this is the shortest of all in fact in your tempo it doesn't even last two minutes <laughs> so we're gonna get to hear the whole thing it is a long two minutes when you're playing it <laughs> well this is the allegretto vivo first movement of the 1933 string trio by jean francais once again black oak ensemble <laughs> That amazing movement you just heard, amazing performance, was by the Black Oak Ensemble from their new album on CD Records, Avant L'Orage, French String Trios, 1926 to 1939, and that one was from 1933, right in the middle, by Jean Francais. It was the first movement of his four-movement string trio. This will be a good time to remind people who the players are. Desiree Rustrad, violin, Aurelien fort Predizoli viola, and David Cunliffe, cello, are the members of the Black Oak Ensemble. And with me once again is Aurelien Pedrizoli, the violist. And again, if you want to hear this whole album for yourself, we're playing excerpts on this podcast, you can check it out on any streaming site you like once it's released on July 14th, as well as purchasing it directly from Sadie Records, and that's again C-E-D-I-L-L-E records.org uh, is our website or archive or Amazon, wherever you like to get your music. And I should note that this is a two-disc set. Of course, on streaming, it'll just play right through. And that is the end of disc one. So this might be a good time in the in-between discs 
to discuss the engineering of CD Records engineer Bill Malone and the challenge of presenting together these works that were recorded over a significant period of time and in two different venues. Yeah, we recorded some of them at the Great Nichols Hall, which is part of the Music Institute in Evanston. Lovely hall. It gives a feeling of like a mini Carnegie Hall a little bit. We, we really love the sound there. Um, you do have to contend with the fact that if an ambulance or the train <laughs> passes by, you might have to stop the recording session. Those sessions were a lot of fun. They were very late at night. We would start at 7 p.m. and end at 11. I believe we recorded the Tomasi there. The second venue is an absolutely gorgeous venue that we were so, so lucky to be able to use, which is the synagogue of North Shore in Glencoe. It's right by a golf course. There is no ambulance going on, or if it is, it's for the violist. And it is this incredible sanctuary uh, made by a Japanese architect. It's all wood, and we recorded most of the albums there. Bill's work as an engineer is absolutely incredible. I've had the chance to work with some fantastic sound engineers, and Bill is obviously top of the list for me. We record standing up, not the cello, obviously, but Desiree and I record standing up, and I think for two reasons. We play standing up, and for us it's just easier. It goes back to the comment I made at the beginning that a string trio is very much three soloists, and for us the most natural way to play is to have our feet in the ground and standing up. And we move a lot. Uh, Desiree moves a lot, I move a lot. So for Bill to find a comfortable way where he can mic us and yet not lose the sound that we are producing has got to be a little bit of a headache, I think. We also like to push away from the microphone when we have to play really, really soft. <laughs> so it, a lot of that. And then you have the cello, which is very static and it doesn't move and that i think is probably easier to fix but i think that after our work in silence voices which we recorded at galvin hall in northwestern bill got the hang of it so just to be precise i will note that this album was recorded the earliest session was june 9 of 2021 and the last session was january 27 of this year 2022 the works recorded in nichols concert hall named for john and alexander nichols at the music institute of chicago in evanston were the tomasi and piece we're about to discuss the kazatsu as well as the Emilgue trio Everything else was recorded, as you noted, at North Shore Congregation, Israel, and Glencoe. In any case, to have that really perfect blend of the ensemble and that really nice overall sound quality without losing any detail, I think, is really what uh, marks the quality of, of this recording in both venues. Yes, and I think what we love about your producing and Bill's engineering is the fact that the performances always seem live. Actually, one of the reviews for Silence Voices said that it felt like the trio was sitting behind your shoulder playing, which is a bit creepy. <laughs> uh, so you really keep that live feeling. And correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think that sound-wise, there was no need to add thing, whether it was reverb or things that you add sometimes. But <laughs> Well, we do have certain sound treatments, and that's part of how we were able to make music in two different venues essentially sound similar enough that you wouldn't say, oh my goodness, that sounds completely different. Yeah. So there was some adjustment there, but both rooms gave us a lot to work with. So mostly you're hearing the actual rooms with, like I said, some adjustments, especially to make them sound similar on the album. So you can't just pick out one or the other. 
And as for the live feeling, that I'm glad to hear you say that because that's so important to me as a producer. Some musicians can tend to be a little bit cautious in recording. And I always encourage musicians to be just the opposite because if you blow something in a live concert, you don't get a second <laughs> chance. Yeah. You can take more risks in a recording session knowing there's always another take. True. And like I said, we're very grateful for that because uh, I've worked different engineers that require a very sterile mm. kind of playing. You want your recording to be the closest to quote-unquote perfection because it is something that is engraved for all eternity. This recording is unchangeable. Now, once it's out, it's out. Uh, we are human beings and not machines. I love the fact that when you listen to the Tomasi, there is a feeling of the piece starts and ends, and what's happening in the middle is something that is alive, and it's alive every time you listen to it. And I think that's, for my money, the best recordings, the recordings that I look up to the most are recordings that makes me feel like it's a live performance. The emotion has to come first. Yes, you want a recording to be a note perfect, but if it doesn't convey the emotion, all the note perfection in the world doesn't make a difference. Exactly. It's not going to move you. So, any case, disc two opens with yet another rarity. Now, I think of Robert Kazatsu as one of the great pianists of the 20th century, particularly renowned for his interpretations of Ravel and Mozart. In fact, I grew up with the, his Mozart piano concerto recordings with George Zell and the Cleveland Orchestra. And if you haven't heard those, by the way, check them out. They are really amazing performances. Yeah. Uh, but I had no idea he was also a composer. And like the other especially obscure figure we've heard from so far, Emile Gouet, a very highly skilled one. Exactly. Kazatsu is interesting for many reasons. He's another link to Zeno Francescati because he had this amazing duo where they recorded all the Beethoven sonatas. So here is what's very, very interesting about uh, the Kazatsu is that once we got our hands on it, we did some research and I got in touch with Therese Kazatsu, who was his daughter. And she happened to teach at Curtis when Desiree was a student at Curtis. She taught French diction, which obviously Desiree didn't take. Uh, <laughs> oh. And I mean, she's a violinist. She actually grew up during the war years. The Kazatsu family moved to Princeton, New Jersey. Actually, as a side note, the Kazatsu family is this incredible dynasty of musicians. You know, the uncle was a violist that wrote the Bach viola concerto. <laughs> which, you know, he's known as Bach Concerto, but he wrote it. Robert's son was a very skilled pianist who played a lot of great modern music. They actually had a trio because Robert Kazatsu's wife was also a great pianist. And so they had this piano trio where they played all the Bach Concerto and he tragically died in a car accident quite young. And a cousin is a conductor, Jean-Claude Kazatsu, who is also very well known. So it is quite a dynasty of, of musicians. So Therese, fantastic lady. We had so many conversations. She told us about how she used to play with Einstein's shoes while he played sonatas with her mom. Some really amazing story. One that comes to mind is when um, Robert Casasu was a bit younger in, in the 20s, he went to a party with Ravel, where they played. And then this young lady, Hungarian violinist, played for hours, and Ravel was absolutely mystified. And he went back to the hotel that night and couldn't sleep, and he wrote Zigan, 
Mm. It's always interesting as a musician to be face to face with history as a musician because there is no descendant of Mozart that you can talk about how Mozart like is coffee. But this is actually fantastic to be so close to classical music royalty if you want. So she really gave us a great deal of information on her dad, mostly that he was very modest about his composing. He never tried to push it. For example, he had, you know, piano concertos that he wrote, and he never would say if the Cleveland Orchestra asked him to play a Mozart concerto, yes, but I also want to play my piece. He never pushed it. Not that he didn't think it was good, but because he was quite modest when it came down to it. The year in which this string trio is written is a huge year for Kazatsu. That's when he performed Carnegie Hall. That's when his career in America really took off. He was uh, Ormandy's favorite. He was Zell's favorite. And he was constantly traveling. And at the time in America, you didn't really take a plane. You were in trains. And so that was the time that he would compose. And he doesn't have a lot of music. He has piano trio. He has a viola sonata, a string trio. And then we're premiering in October in New York we're premiering his piano quartet. We'll be playing his string trio and his piano quartet. And the last thing I'll say about him is that he was instrumental in the École Américaine in Fontainebleau, which is a music school that has seen the likes of Menuhin and other people go through the doors. It's in Fontainebleau, which is a castle outside of Paris. And he was the director there, and his daughter now is very involved in the process. For those who want to look up those piano recordings I mentioned, and his complete Ravel is also revered yeah. to this day, Kazatsu is actually spelled C-A-S-A-D-E-S-U-S. You may just want to keep that in mind. And not surprisingly, most of his known compositional output involves the piano. You mentioned the five piano concertos and a lot of sonatas for one instrument or the other with piano. Now, this string trio from 1938 is actually the only piece of string chamber music that was actually published, and this is its world premiere recording. So how did you find it, and any idea how he came to write a piece for strings? Well, it was a gift from the Flute de Pont, that library in Paris. It came in package and first edition, meaning it was very difficult finding a score. We had the parts, but finding the score was quite difficult. The daughter, Therese, was not a part of the editing of it. She is now editing quite a few pieces by his, but she was not part of it. It came to us and we read it, and it is also a very difficult piece. Mostly the last movement, because I believe there is five or six sharp, which is not a fun key to play <laughs> as a string player. But there is a good reason for it. It makes sense, and it's not just six sharp for the sake of six sharps. The piece itself it doesn't sound like a pianist wrote it. Often when a pianist writes music for strings, it tends to be unidiomatic. But I think he was close enough to many, many great string players that he was able to himself probably use the anatomy of a string instrument. Only three-movement piece. The second movement, you could argue, is two movements. It's called Légende, and it's absolutely gorgeous. It's uh, very meditative. And then in the middle of it, you have this scherzo that is actually quite close to the scherzo you find in the Tomasi or in the Francais. Yeah, in fact, we're going to hear a little bit of that Légende in, in a moment. So let's just take a quick brief tour through the outer movements. And I should note that this trio is dedicated au trio Pasquier. So yet another... Yes, they were chamber music partners. They played all the Mozart piano quartets 
And so that is 100% the reason why that piece was written. What's interesting to go back about the Pesquet Trio for a second is that some of that music was written for them, and I don't think they've ever played it. Ah. Therese said that there is no archive or any kind of sign that uh, the Pesquet Trio premiered it. Well, what would you want to say about the outer movements before we hear the inner movement, as it were? Well, like I said, the last movement is very difficult. It's also a very swashbuckling movement to go hand in hand with the rest of the album. The first movement is actually very interesting. It starts with a very deep viola trill and this very angular melody that comes running through with a violin. It is a very distinct style. Think about Stravinsky sometimes. It is very angular. The first and last movement evoke angularity, something that is very straight and almost metronomic. And the second movement is the complete opposite. Well, and in fact, has an unusual title, Légende. Do you have any insights into that? No, but you know, there is a piece by uh, Wieniawski called Légende, which I'm sure he played with Francescati quite a bit. It could be that. It could be just that is what he was picturing. Legend in the sense of a story. Mm. Old legends, not literally like a, someone legendary. But mm. that's what I picture. It has this expansive flow that lets you imagine a lot of things while you're hearing it. In her notes, Eleanor Olin refers to it as an atmosphere shrouded in mist. And I think that's that a is right on. pretty good description. So let's hear some of that then. Here's an excerpt from the middle movement, the Légende, from the String Trio by Robert Kazatsu, composed in 1938, performed now by the Black Oak Ensemble.
Well, wasn't that gorgeous? You just heard some of the légende, the slow movement, middle movement of string trio by Robert Kazatsu, better known to record collectors probably as a pianist than a composer, but as you can hear, quite a wonderful composer. His dates, by the way, were 1899 to 1972. The string trio was from 1938. So far, all the string trios we've heard have been three or four movement sonata-like affairs, but as they say on Monty Python, now for something completely different. We have a six-movement suite en trio by Gustave Samazoy, who lived from 1877 all the way to 1967. A self-described disciple of Debussy and, like Kazatsu, particularly known as a pianist and, in this case, also a piano transcriber. His 1937 work that we're about to hear from is in the form of a broke dance suite with titles familiar to aficionados of Bach's keyboard suites, for example. Um, in fact, I'll read the titles. They are Prélude, Française, Sarabande, Divertissement, Musette, and Forlan. So obviously French dances all of these. Aurelien, please tell us more about this, yet again, fairly obscure composer and the different and highly varied movements of his suite. Gustave Samazoy actually is very famous for being a critic. And that is what he's mostly remembered for now. Reviewer, if you will. He wrote quite a few books. He was an authority on a lot of music. He's also from a great family of musicians. There is a Stradivarius name after his family, the Samazoy, which is on loan at the Nippon Foundation. His writing on the surface is very academic uh, in an almost uh, boring way. When you look at the titles of it, generally people who wrote music that was revivalists of Baroque music tended to be little ditties that were not all that interesting. But the colors, the textures, the character of the pieces is out of the ordinary for someone who you would qualify of academic. First of all, it's a piano piece, and he was the pianist, but his knowledge of the instrument is very good. Um, the first movement is almost like a film noir. You could totally see Humphrey Bogart. Mm-hmm. He's like you know black and white movie, and the, the viola has his running sixteens. Feels like you're riding in an old steam model uh, with young damsel in distress, and it's very very cool. The Sarabande, it's a dirge. For me, the names of those movements is more indicative of the feelings that you want for each of those movements. None of them are dances. Let me be clear about that. I mean, not in my mind. So the Sarabande is very close to a dirge. It's heavy and, and self-pathetic almost. Forlan is the last movement and it's this very Debussy-esque uh, with the violas running triplets throughout the whole thing, extremely brilliant and almost heroic. The Musette is my favorite and it's so simple. It gives you chills because it is so pure and so s- almost transparent, the writing. The Divertissement is one that we play very often as an encore because it is very funny, or at least we play it in a way that we think is funny. Maybe we're the kind of people that laugh at our own jokes. And the Française is probably the one that is closest to its title. Française being a, a peasant dance, if you will. That one, I think you could dance to. Well, this is yet another world premiere recording. Another piece dedicated to the Pasquier Trio, and this one from 1937. So I think it's fair to say it's a piece that required 
a particular interpretive inventiveness from the ensemble, given that you had no other performances or recordings to reference? We listened to the piano version a few times, which doesn't help very much. <laughs> so there is a lot of differences. When he rewrote it, he actually added things because he knows how the instruments work. This is something that I never really want to find out, but I don't know if we played it the way that he envisioned it or if he envisioned it in a more academic way. And I don't ever want to find out yeah. because we took the music and we made it ours and we decided what to do with it. It would be sad if he was still alive and he was like, no, I want it exact. <laughs> so for us, it's a very fun piece to play and it's, it's something color-wise impressionistic almost that we really enjoy playing and I hope you enjoy listening to. I think that's what any good ensemble should do. And maybe the best example of this is the movement titled Divertissement, which is indeed highly amusing as you play it here. Can you talk about how you were able to convey what you felt the essence of this movement was? Yeah, so we toyed with the idea of what the Divertissement was. Because, like I said, the Française is an actual dance. And the Musette, I guess, is an actual Musette as well, because there is this almost backpipe thing running through but a divertissement we try to play it very straight we try to play it almost like a divertimento or a baroque divertissement and it just wasn't us it was not interesting uh, maybe it's testament or shortcoming of ours <laughs> i'm not sure but to us it was not what we wanted to convey with the music so we really tweaked tempis rubatos sound effects in the first repeat, we changed the writing from bowed arco to pids in the viola and cello to seem even more timid and unsure. Rewriting it is not correct. It's not what we did, but we made some additions and other things like that just to fit the purpose of what we wanted to portray, which is maybe someone slightly self-important who happens to get into mischiefs. Well, in fact, to me, at least as it's played here, it has that off-kilter, sardonic quality of Gounod's funeral march of a marionette. Very much so. Like, you know, the marionette, I think you kind of hit it there. So it's just pompous, almost guignol, which is, you know, like marionette in French. <laughs> and for those who don't immediately recognize the title, that's the piece made famous by the TV series Alfred Hitchcock Presents. So now that you know what I'm referencing, see what you think as you listen. This is the Divertissement from the Suite en Trio by Gustave Samazoy, performed once again by the Black Oak Ensemble. Thank you. 
Well, I sure hope you enjoyed that. That was the Divertissement from Gustave Samazoy's 1937 Suite en Trio, performed by the Black Oak Ensemble on their album of all French string trios, titled Avant l'Orage, Before the Storm, the storm being World War II, because these works were all written between the two world wars. And uh, we come now to the last work on the album by the other somewhat known composer outside of France, Gabriel Piernet, who lived from 1863 to 1937, so the oldest figure on the album. As with most of the works on this recording, his Trois Pièces en Trio was written, also uh, just like the last work in 1937, for the Trio Pasquier, and in this case, very literally so, as Aurelien mentioned early in the podcast, the main themes are actually based on the individual player names. And there's also a theme based on the name of the entire ensemble. And if you want to know exactly how Piernay did this, I once again recommend the program note by Eleanor Olin, which you can read in the album booklet, whether you buy the CD or simply go to the webpage on sadierecords.org and read the program notes there or download the booklet there. But in any case, interestingly, Piernay wrote this piece the year he died and never got to hear the piece performed publicly. The Trio Pasquier, to whom it is dedicated, actually gave the premiere in March 1938. Aurelien, what would you say are Piernay's hallmarks as a composer? It's like every French composer of the time. Wind music, harp music, and lots of piano and some saxophone in there. Pierre Ney was actually the director of the Conservatoire for quite a long time, which was a big achievement in France. I believe he actually taught composition to some of the Basque brothers. It's difficult to answer your question because all three movements are very different. There is no style per se that runs through it is possibly the closer to Debussy in the fact that like there is a lot of impressionistic influence or impressionistic values in the writing but I think that's where it stops the first movement like I mentioned earlier is a fugue based on the names of the three brothers and the name of the trio but it's a fugue that is interrupted by almost comical, droll, meme 
music in the middle and i mean meme as mime not as <laughs> memes the last movement is absolutely incredible i mean to, to play it is really fantastic but so different and i'm very happy that actually we never had to discuss the order of the album you came out with exactly the order that we had in mind finishing with this piece it's one of our favorites by far because it's a very magical piece i think back to you i want to key on that finale in a minute anything to say about the chanson the middle movement before we do it's very much similar to the Legende or to the Nocturne. It's those middle movements that are very pensive, slow promenade through the woods of nature you want to imagine. And very simplistic on the surface, but really meaningful if you dig deep a little bit. The last movement, which is called Les Trois Clairs de Saint-Nicolas, I've fought with David the Chalice quite a bit about this. First of all, because it's in French, so he has no right to actually... But because I know for a fact that Balzac was very anti-clergy, and I know that because I went to school, <laughs> but also um, Pianet was also part of a very populist movement when he was younger. All of those musicians, none of them was uh, Republican. They, they were all fierce Democrats, if to put it in American terms. And the inscription in the last movement compares three clerks, which in French can be interpreted as three priests or three priests in the making, uh, compares them to uh, people who basically take the money of the people to get drunk and eat. Literally fat cats, right? Fat cats, yes. But if you say fat cat in America, you start thinking jazz musicians, because ah. that's cats. Um, but to me, I have this very clear... It's a street chant also about clergy, about the fact that they take your money and then they do with it what they please. It has this nagging melody that resemble what a kid would sing mm -hmm. in a recreation yard. Well, fat cat actually in, in English also has the connotation of just someone who's very well-to-do and maybe someone who's well-to-do and doesn't give a you-know-what about other yeah. people. Let me actually read. So the inscription you mentioned is by Honoré de Balzac from his Droll Stories, and it's written in a fake old ancien French, mm -hmm. fake old French, and Eleanor Olin in her notes translates it as follows, and you've already mentioned that Katz refers to these clergy or clergy in the making, these clerks. After lunch... Three stuffed cats, pot-bellied and well-lubricated with drink, stumble into the crowd of people at the fair. So yes, this is not a flattering portrait. No, and I have this image, and I guess that's a fight that I have with David, because David maintains they're clerks, not clergy-related. But I have this picture in Strasbourg. There is a huge Christmas market right in front of the cathedral. And I have this image of those three priests with a white color who just came out of a restaurant, maybe had some choucroute and a lot of beer, <laughs> and just descend upon the populace of the Christmas markets. And having dined and drunk on people's dime after giving sermons such as sermons about how you have to be altruistic. And I just have this image of, of that every time I play it. So how does the movement title and that quote inform the interpretation? Well, for me, that is what I picture. It's a very nagging, very 
finger in the ribs performing. It's an uncomfortable movement to play from a technical point of view. It's difficult to tune because of the open strings of the pits. What he demands of you when you play arco, it's not as idiomatic as the rest of the piece, but it's very childish. Compared to the other movements, this movement feels very childish and feels he's writing and he knows his audience. There is a great recording of the Basket Trio playing just the first movement of this on a radio broadcast. Mm. And it actually informed tremendously the way that we played this piece because the first time we read the first movement, because it is so cookie, there is so many different voices and sections, you know, fast sections. Uh, in the first movement, it's a roller coaster. And when we first read it, we were like, what is this? And we just didn't grab onto it. And then when it came time to actually commit to the music that we were recording for CD, we came across that recording and epiphany for me, you know, I just realized what it was. And they play so romantically with slides up and down and and vibratos that so fast you think they put their finger in a plug. Well, we all thought this finale that you mentioned provided an amusing ending for the album. So let's hear some of those stumbling cats or priests right now. Again, this is the third movement of the three pieces for trio, Trois Pièces en Trio, by Gabriel Pierne. Well, that very fun movement we just heard a bit of, Les Trois Clercs de Saint-Nicolas, is the title. It's the third of the three pieces en trio, three string trio pieces by Gabriel Piernet, composed shortly before he passed away in 1937. It was performed there by the Black Oak Ensemble from their July 2022 release on CD Records, Avant l'Orage, Before the Storm, French String Trios, 1926 to 1939. Again, the 
Black Oak Ensemble is Desiree Rustrat Violin, Aurelian Fort Pedrozoli Viola, and David Cunliffe Cello. And with me once again is Aurelia Pedrozoli, the violist. And if you like what you've been hearing, please check out the album, whether you stream it on Spotify, Apple Music, Tidal, or wherever you like to listen. It becomes available on its very special release date of the 14th of July, French Independence Day. You can also purchase it from sadierecords.org or amazon.com or Archive Music. And of course, you can pre-order ahead of the release date and then it ships on the release date. So however you like to obtain or listen to your music, I hope you'll want to check out this really fun and very full album. It's seven string trios divided over two compact discs over two hours of music and even though these works are from over 80 years ago three of them are in world premiere recordings so now that we've heard bits of all seven pieces and composers Aurelien, what would you like people to take away from this very generous program as a whole that string trio is a medium that is often not looked at as valuable as string quartet or other formations and that it offers a great deal of texture sound and music that i don't think any of this music would work for a string quartet or piano trio and i think the takeaway from that is how important a string trio as an ensemble is in the grand scheme of chamber music ensemble and how much composers of talent wrote for it and yet none of this music is well known if any of those pieces were string quartet they would be played to death Hmm. because the string quartet repertoire is so vast people find this music and then they play it but because they were string trios they were played by the dedicacy and that was it one part of the work that we've been doing since the beginning of our association is to bring these works to light whether it is with silent voices or with Avant l'Orage, and I think that's something that we've really endeavored to do, and we hope you can be part of that adventure. Yeah, in fact, in her uh, program note, uh, Eleanor Olin refers to the string trio format as three soloists interacting as an ensemble, which I think is very different, from, as you mentioned at the beginning, uh, from the concept of a string quartet, and I think that really comes through in these pieces. Well, speaking of your three soloists working as an ensemble, what's coming up for Black Oak Ensemble, including maybe you can talk about some concerts where people can hear live the repertoire from this album, as well as Silenced Voices, your previous CD release. So today we have a performance where we are going to play most of the French trios on the album. On the 20th, of, we have a few more performances of Silence Voices, and then we play at the Newport Festival in Rhode Island, a complete program of Silence Voices. The performance uh, CD release party, so the album comes July 14th, which I'm so glad we were able to do that because, you know, Bastille Day, yay. Um, the performance will be on the 17th of July at 2 p.m. at Epiphany, which is a new space uh, in Chicago, and the address is 201-201 South Ashland Avenue. Um, There is parking and probably will be valet and we will be playing most of the music and talking about it and having a good time. Then we go back on tour. Just to give people an idea of how current these programs are, four days later you uh, perform Silence Voices uh, at a festival in Chicago, right? True, yeah, exactly. And then after that we are going to Europe to perform Silence Voices and Avant L'Orage 
will be in Switzerland performing Avant l'Orage as well as the Schubert Quintet that we're recording later this year for the label Aparté. So busy summer for all of us, not that we can complain. We've been very lucky as an ensemble to have been able to keep performing throughout the pandemic because we had this bubble. We were able to do streaming concerts, uh, which a lot of our colleagues were not able to do. We were able to work on projects that we are working on with Colombia via the magic of Zoom. And one of the good things about a string trio is that it's one less person <laughs> to worry about. And I think presenters enjoy that. Aurelian, remind me, when did you actually come to Chicago? I first moved to New York and then I came to Chicago in 2001. So. I've been here quite a while. Well, we always end these podcasts, and I think your coming from uh, a different country gives you perhaps a unique perspective. What, for you, makes the Chicago music scene so special? One of the things that people could see as a disadvantage, and it isn't, I think that's what makes it strength, is that when you look at places like New York or L.A. or San Francisco, they are the big schools, you know, Juilliard and, and Curtis, and, and so you have this pool of talent there, but it's really passing talent it's people who will get a job doing something else very soon chicago has an extremely devoted and loyal chamber music scene but music scene whether it's house music weird electronic music or classical music of course it has world-class orchestra like cso and lyric but the talent and the breadth of diversity in ensembles in chicago is enormous and it's something that city has highlighted and supported since its inception, whether it be Third Coast Percussion or Eight Blackbird, which are groundbreaking ensembles of their own right, but that are extremely Chicago-centric. Neither, first of all, Third Coast Percussion, it's in the name, or Lincoln Trio, also in the name. None of those ensembles could exist anywhere else. And it's partly because of the city itself, its culture, its history, its traditions, but also because of what kind of individual a city like this attracts. Someone who wants to create uh, on their own term and actually come up with something that is out of the box, I think Chicago is the city for you. Uh, and I should mention that our two previous album releases ahead of uh, Avant Orage are in fact by Third Coast Percussion and the Lincoln Trio, respectively. And also our last release this year will feature another great Chicago ensemble, the Pacifica Quartet, along with Anthony McGill, the great clarinetist uh, who was born and raised uh, on the south side of Chicago. So uh, I think that certainly speaks to what you were saying, and I really appreciate those comments. So with that, this has been another Classical Chicago podcast from Sadie Records. Thank you so much for listening.